Jesus' name. Amen. And now, if you thought my singing was off-key, just wait for the sermon. Inflation has affected all of us, but I was trying to figure out how that uh, we're called the Bay Four, but there were five of us up there. And then I realized, of course, that Gordon and Carol are one in the Lord. So suddenly the math worked for me. Our friend Don Reed tells the story about a church that uh, had a singing group, and there were five of them. But they called themselves a trio because apparently in that church they didn't know how to spell quartet and didn't know what the word for five was, so they stuck with trio. (laughs) So maybe that could be us. We continue along today in our study of the gospel according to Luke and reminding all of you that the doctor has good news. Now, I know a number of you are struggling with the doctor having not brought good news. Joe Widener is not the only one who is uh, having to deal with a particular prognosis. But I can tell you this, whatever your diagnosis may be, Joe, with faith in the Lord Jesus, your prognosis is absolutely excellent. And we all need to know that. The outcome is guaranteed in Christ Jesus. Whether we experience physical healing in this life or whether God chooses to bestow upon us that wondrous blessing of being glorified in the next, we will know what it is to be whole. And so today, it is my privilege again to declare to you the gospel of the Lord Jesus, because that, after all, that's our designation. As I think of all the things that a pastor is called, from reverend to preacher to pastor to you name it, in my heart and mind, the title that I most treasure above all, is minister or servant of the gospel. And it is the gospel I want to proclaim to you. And so we look at Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And I want to remind you, though you don't need reminding because I know you already know it, but this is the word of God. It is inspired by the spirit of God. It is therefore without error, our only infallible rule of faith and practice. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. It was the 3rd of August, 1914. Europe was seeing the dark clouds of war looming over the horizon. On the 28th of June of that same year, just prior, the Archduke Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and his wife were assassinated. And that set in motion a series of events that led to what we know as the First World War, then called the Great War. But it was on the 3rd of August before the guns of August, and that title that we all have come to know, that Sir Edward Gray, in Whitehall that evening, standing with a friend at the window, as the street lamps below were being lit, made the remark that has come since to epitomize the hour. The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. That comes from a moment in time in history. And we are living in a moment in time in history. When it seems as if things are not going well for the church. Someone said just this last week, having surveyed the Christian landscape in North America, made the comment that COVID has killed the church. Someone else said, COVID didn't kill the church. COVID revealed that the church in America was dead. Well, I'm here to tell you that whatever our immediate prospects may look like from a human standpoint, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ shall prosper. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that he has come to establish. And so we see that as Luke begins this section of his narrative, that he grounds it in history, just as surely as Sir Edward Gray spoke those words on the 3rd of August, 1914. So we can be assured that John the Baptist undertook his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then we see the other individuals listed there. A reminder to us that Luke is an historian. As Dr. Philip Ryken has noted, during the 19th century, liberal Bible scholars tried to argue that Luke was a bad historian, that his books were riddled with factual errors. However, in the succeeding hundred years, this assessment of Luke's historiography has been almost completely reversed. The more we learn about the ancient world, the more we see how careful he was to get the facts straight. One historian concludes, wherever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, The judgment has been unanimous. He is one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. In the words of the famous archaeologist William Ramsey, Luke 
is an historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at greater length while he touches lightly of almost entirely omits much that was valueless for his purpose. In short, the author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And so Luke grounds the ministry of John, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ in actual history. This was an actual time. These were actual people. Now, even though we have these very specific, uh, this time frame mentioned, it is impossible, nevertheless, to determine exactly what year this was for various reasons. But we know it was somewhere between the years 27 and 30, depending on when you count the reign of Tiberius beginning, because he reigned in a co-reign with uh, Caesar Augustus before Caesar Augustus died. It was not a favorable time for God's people. They are divided. As you see, being under the rule of Rome, they also are divided otherwise among Pilate and Herod and Philip and Lysanias. By the way, that was one of those uh, places where skeptical historians years ago thought that Luke had tripped up. They said, oh, Lysanias. He was, uh, he was governor in that region in a much earlier time. Well, come to find out, archaeological inscriptions came to light, which showed there was another Lysanias who was, in fact, ruler at just the time that Luke says he was. Even so, God's people were divided. This is not a favorable time. There is no indication that anything good is about to happen. They are being uh, tyrannized under the iron rule of Rome, they are divided into different regions. There's no possibility that God's people could ever assume a place of unity and progress. And yet, in all of this, out of the wilderness, there comes a voice. Remember, God's truth comes from God. It is never determined by the mood of the day. You know, we could conduct polls until we're blue in the face, and that seems what we in, to be intent on doing in the United States. We can ask questions. We can determine where people are spiritually. But the truth of God is never determined by popular opinion. God proclaims his own truth. Truth is determined by the revelation that he has given us in his word. John is faithful to that word, and even though he brought that word alone, that word is true. You can put all of the scholars you want together in our institutions of higher learning and let them debate and discuss and talk about matters and come back with their findings on what truth is. And if those things don't line up with Scripture, they're absolutely worthless. The grass withers. The flowers fall. It's the word of the Lord that stands forever. And so we see that the gospel is rooted and grounded not only in history, but also in prophecy. For indeed, the coming of the Lord Jesus was foretold, but so also is the coming of John the Baptist. We have hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament written centuries before either of these two came on the scene. And yet they so accurately describe the ministry they undertook that they read as if they had been written after the fact. And it is impossible that they were. We have extant manuscripts of these prophecies that predate 
the time of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist. Among them, Isaiah. So we're not just simply reading about what happened. We're reading about what God said would happen, and it did happen, and therefore we can have confidence and faith in the one that is proclaimed. So John comes forth as a fulfillment of prophecy, as we see that in verses 1 through 6. Indeed, as Luke had said earlier in chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. We possess a faith and we profess a faith that is ancient, one that has been proclaimed by God through his faithful servants down through the centuries. And we draw confidence in that. You can have hope, assurance, confidence, not based on what the news says, but based on the good news proclaimed by Luke the physician and others. And so John, this wily one, dressed in camel's hair with a leather band around his waist, as we read about, especially in the book of Matthew, the one who was living in the wilderness off of locusts and wild honey. I remember hearing that in Sunday school when I was a little boy, and I thought, you know, there's a lot to admire about John, but I don't plan to go home and have Sunday lunch based on his habit of eating. He lived in the wilderness. He was isolated. And yet, called of God, he came forth at the, just the right time to proclaim the coming of the Lord Jesus. For the earthly ministry of Jesus is about to begin. Of all the monumental moments in history, of all the important things that have happened down through the course of human events, there are none so significant as the coming of the Lord Christ and of his ministry on this earth. And so John proclaims it. But he comes proclaiming a baptism. Now, we call him John the Baptist. If somebody said he would be John the Presbyterian if he'd had more information. <laughs> Just kidding. He came baptizing. A ceremonial washing, which was not unknown to God's people. Those, after all, who, who converted to Judaism, who converted to worshiping the one true God, were brought into the household of faith through the ceremonial washing that would rightly be called a baptism. And so John doing that was not anything extraordinary. What was extraordinary about it is that he required everyone to be baptized, Jew included. Jews had never had that required of them had they been born into the covenant family. Now John comes saying to them, they need to repent and be baptized. So we see that a new covenant is coming on the scene. A new covenant with a new sign and symbol for a new way of living. Yes, indeed. When God calls us to repent, he calls us to leave behind the life that we've led. He calls us to cease trusting in our so-called righteousness. Peter proclaims it in Acts chapter 2 as that sign continues on as Jesus commanded that not only should disciples be made of all the nations, but they should be taught to observe everything that he commanded, but also to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism. Baptism is a pretty simple thing, you know. Water. Now, I've not traveled everywhere in the world, but so far everywhere that I've been, there is water. 
I know that to be the case because there's been life everywhere that I've been. If you don't have water, you don't have life. But water exists everywhere. It is a very simple element. It is that element that God uses through John to demonstrate this washing and cleansing which takes place when the grace of repentance is given. And so we see water as that universal cleansing agent. As Sandy Fernong said before church, I told you we're going to hear it again. She said, yes, that it's the universal solvent. She said, if I see something that's dirty, I attack it with water first. Isn't that a great image? So that we see that water is that symbol of cleansing. And so as repentance took place, baptism is administered to symbolize the washing away of the filth and the pollution. Now, we know that water can't take away our sins. doesn't matter if you're sprinkled or immersed or poured on or anything else. Water can't do it. It is only the blood of Jesus that cleanses us of our every sin. But symbolizing that ultimate element of salvation, there is forgiveness of sins. And oh, how we rejoice in that. So that Peter was able to say on the day of Pentecost, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. By using those words, the promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off. Peter makes clear that there is a new sign for this new covenant. No longer circumcision, but baptism. And John is the one who came. Proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins with baptism. Well, much more can be said about that. Much more should be said about that. But as we consider and think about it, just consider the courage, the valiant prophet proclaiming God's word, even when he had spent those years alone in the wilderness, the voice of one. But then we ask ourselves, has God's word not always come forth from even that lone voice? Was it not Ezekiel who stood above that valley of dry bones when there wasn't anything alive on that plain? And yet God commanded prophesy. And as the word of God went forth, those bones which had been dried and long decayed were brought together and suddenly there was a whole host of living bodies there. It is the word of God that brings life then and now, and so we rejoice. And ultimately, that word, of course, is a proclamation of Jesus. That voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. No, that's not an invitation. He's not asking us. It is a command. You better be getting ready. I was uh, so ready for Kathy to come home. And I was trying to get everything, you know, cleaned up here and there as best I could. I didn't impress her. But nevertheless, I tried. And, you know, I even went out and got a balloon and got a little card. And I wanted to be ready for when she came home. I wanted her to know that I was glad she was coming home. And however poor of a job I did with that. Understand this. The coming of the Lord Jesus means a people who will be prepared if we truly rejoice in his coming. And he's coming back. How ready are you? We prepare for trips. We prepare for Christmas and birthdays. We prepare to go to the doctor on any given day or to the grocery store. But are you preparing yourself for the coming of the Lord? Because the arrival of Jesus brings change on a monumental scale. Notice, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill be made low. 
The crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall be plain or level ways. That's astounding. I grew up in the mountains. You don't just knock a mountain down. You don't just fill in a valley. We're talking about something that is absolutely extraordinary. Jesus comes into a life and he completely changes us from the inside out. And ultimately, when he returns, we know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This whole world is going to be transformed by him, and it will be extraordinary. And so as John proclaims this prophecy, we hear it now 2,000 years later, knowing that Jesus continues to bring that same extraordinary change about in every life that he touches. And change ultimately will happen when he returns. We need to understand that the proclamation of God's work in Christ is global in scope, reaching every people group. Now, this does not mean that everyone will be saved. It does not mean that everyone will be in the kingdom of God. Remember, we've got a whole host of people in the world today who want nothing to do with God, who want to continue to trust in their own works and their own righteousness or ignore all of that stuff altogether. So in eternity, we really get what we want. If we want to live our lives autonomously, without surrender, without repentance, then guess what? Eternity will be just that for you, an eternity without the blessing of God's presence. You will get what you want. Be prepared. So this proclamation, nevertheless, will be witnessed by all, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Every eye will see him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There will be those who do it willingly with great rejoicing in our hearts and others who will do it because they will be forced to do it, being overwhelmed in the presence of the one true and living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember that entrance into God's kingdom is by faith and repentance and not by pedigree. Those Jews who came out there, who John looked at and called them a brood of vipers and other flattering terms, he failed to go through that class, how to win friends and influence people, I'm afraid. They had to hear and to understand that by simply being a descendant of Abraham did not guarantee their entrance into heaven. Just like now, you're being a member of this or any other church does not gain entrance for you into heaven. It's not by pedigree. It is by faith and repentance in Christ alone. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Years ago, there was a former missionary to China who was applying for Social Security benefits. And talking to the uh, worker on the phone uh, with the uh, Department of Social Security was trying to explain the circumstance. And so the person on the phone was asking, where were you born? And she said, I was born in China. And so the voice on the phone said, oh, well, then you're Chinese. And she said, no, I'm an American. But you were born in China. That's right. So you're Chinese. And after this went on for a couple of minutes, finally the former missionary in frustration said, look, If your cat happens to have kittens in the oven, that does not make them biscuits. (laughs) Think about that. Just because you might spend time in your garage does not make you an automobile. Just because you spend time in church doesn't make you a Christian. 
That requires a relationship with Jesus. That requires repentance and faith. I don't care who you are an offspring of. And so, take heed. And remember that what God requires of one person or group, he requires of all. (laughs) Tax collectors. How in the world do they have any possibility of being included in this? After all, they were seen as Jews who had who had gone over to the other side. They were seen as traitors to their fellow countrymen. And yet the way is left open for them. That they are told in their repentance they need to not extort. That they can't steal from others and take more than is uh, lawful for them. But also even soldiers, the worst of the worst. Perhaps these are people who accompanied the tax collectors and enforced the collection with the might of Rome. But there's a way open even for them to enter the kingdom by repentance. And for them, it means not extorting money or utilizing threats or bringing false accusations. Whoever you are, whatever you are, repentance is something that you must have by God's grace. And it means a changed life. You cannot simply claim to be a Christian. You cannot simply claim to be a follower of Christ. After all, James says, if you say that you have faith, and that faith doesn't have works, can that faith save you? Yes, we're saved by faith alone. But as Martin Luther says, it's not by faith it is alone. It is a faith that comes by way of repentance, which is a grace from God that produces a change of life with observable results. We call that fruits. Now, you know, I've made the claim, and you know it to be true. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. There are a lot of people in the world who are a lot smarter than I am. There are a lot of people in this room who are, in fact. But even so, all I can tell you is what I know. And what I know is this. You can't get apples from a grapevine. And you can't get grapes from an apple tree. You can't graft a peach tree into a seedling and expect to get plums off of it. You will produce fruit according to your nature. And if you are in Christ, having repented of sins and trusted in him, your new nature will be in evidence by the fruit you produce. If there is no fruit, look at the root. And if there is no fruit, ultimately the acts will be brought to bear on the root of the tree. That brings up a humorous story I don't have time to tell, but I'll throw it in anyway. By the way, the clock on the wall says it's two minutes till two. So I just wanted to let you know that I have no idea what time it is. So there was an old boy who was raised in the Baptist church, and he felt like he was called to preach. But every sermon that he preached was on baptism. Every single sermon he preached was on baptism by immersion. It didn't matter what the text was. And finally, the church had grown a little weary of it. The leaders got together, and they said, we want you to preach some other subject. And they gave him this text. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. And the man announced his text. And he said, why else would you lay the axe to the root of the tree except to cut down the tree to dam up the creek so that you could have a baptism? This is a very real warning, all humor aside. 
those who do not bear fruit, those who are not in Christ, there is a cutting down and a casting into the fire. Remember I told you that judgment is ultimately the getting what you want? If repentance is not your thing, if you refuse God's command, you refuse to yield, you refuse to repent. That just simply means you want to call the shots yourself. Rather than being in submission to the Lord and to his word, you want to be an authority to yourself. And so it will come as no surprise on that day when the cutting down and the casting into the fire occurs. But it need not be so. John comes proclaiming this warning, presumably because there's an opportunity to respond. And so I say it to you today as an opportunity for you to respond. Look around you. There are all kinds of us who have heard and heeded and repented and trusted in Jesus. All of us who have lives of sin that would forever separate us from God. And yet, by the grace of God, here we are, counted as children of God. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When we've relinquished all of our so-called righteousness, our pedigree, and anything else that we thought would commend us to God in order to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, every mountain, every valley, every crooked way, every rough place, a complete transformation by the grace of God. What a wondrous thing that John initiates. What a wonderful thing we continue to talk about all these 2,000 years later. You know, the news that you think is so important right now that seems to be impacting your life. You know, somebody brought me a stack of papers recently, and I was leafing through those, and there was one lead article in one paper that said, too much news consumption will affect you adversely. Thousands of years from now, think of all of the stories that will long be forgotten. But think of this one. Great and glorious bit of news that continues to reverberate throughout the world and will continue to sound forth in eternity. Jesus, as John came to proclaim him, I now proclaim to you him. And oh, what glorious hope there is. Hope. Yes, there may not be all the fruit there that you might like there to be. And perfection will not be attainable in this life. But you can certainly have Jesus. He's already attained the perfection. Put your trust in him. And let's pray. Father in heaven, blessed be your name. As we come together and consider this glorious gospel of grace and the Lord Jesus, who is the message of that good news, impress upon our hearts. His saving power, the truth of his life, the effectual death that he died, the resurrection he attained, which we all shall know when our faith is in him, that, Father, we all may leave here this day rejoicing and knowing that we are yours, giving evidence of life through the fruit that we bear and giving glory and praise to you and you alone.
For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. More love to thee. Let's stand together as we sing. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together. Amen.